The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collins. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and my guest today is a psychiatrist who's been working with addictions. Uh, Dr. Lance Dotis has been successfully helping people to master their addictions, whether alcoholism, compulsive gambling, smoking, sexual addiction, or some other addiction, uh, for more than 30 years. In addition to many professional journal articles about addiction, Dr. Dotis has written three books, The Heart of Addiction, Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook for ending any addiction, and The Sober Truth, Debunking the Bad Science Behind 12-Step Programs and the Rehab Industry. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dotis. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Let's start with a definition. What is addiction? Well, it's a good question because uh, it turns out that most people mix up the meaning of addiction, including some professionals. Uh, Part of the problem is that the word itself is used in two entirely different ways which are confused. One way, which most people know, is physical addiction. That's the sort of thing where uh, people, when they try to stop taking a drug like alcohol or heroin, uh, have a reaction. They have a withdrawal reaction. And uh, in order to prevent that, they they sometimes go on a mad search to get more of the drug. Uh, This part is well known, and it's also the part that's easiest to treat about addiction because physical addiction is treated by just uh, detoxifying the person by taking slowly uh, tapering them off it and once they're off it they're off it there is no more physical addiction but that's only a very small part of the story and it's completely different from what really is the problem in addiction for people who have addictions the problem isn't that they're physically addicted because we know that because there are lots of addictions that don't have any physical addiction. They can't because the drug isn't addictive. A drug like marijuana, for example, uh, you can't, you don't develop withdrawal symptoms and you don't become physically addicted because you can't. It's just not in the chemical. Uh, and yet you can certainly use it addictively. And then the other reason why we know physical addiction isn't that important is because there are lots of addictions that have nothing to do with drugs, like compulsive gambling or sexual addiction uh, or uh, addictive use of the Internet. Uh, and so forth. So the real problem in addiction is not uh, something to do with the chemicals. It has something to do with why people repeat this behavior, even though it's so destructive. And that's the part that I've been interested in for the past uh, 30 years, that uh, what is the psychology, what is the emotional factor that leads people to go back again and again to do something 
uh, with no physical basis at all, but they still do it, and you can't stop them, and they can't stop themselves. So addiction is really fundamentally a psychological issue. It's a way of trying to deal with the world, um, which works out very badly, of course. But it's like a lot of other compulsive behaviors that we have, things that we feel we must do, and if we don't do them, we get anxious or become unhappy. Um, and, and so it can be understood as an emotional uh, symptom, and it can be treated that way. So that's what addiction really is. And the rest of it, which you hear about so much, uh, like the, the physical piece uh, or uh, some of the other elements, uh, which maybe we can talk about later, but those things are really not the essence of what addiction is. Okay. And I've spent most of my career trying to define what that psychology is, why people, what goes on inside of people that leads them to go back to do the same thing, whether it's take a drug or, or gamble or eat or, or go back to that Internet game again and again. And I think I've, uh, I've developed a theory about it, which uh, I've been writing about for many years and which is now, I'm glad to say, uh, taught around the country. That sounds like a really good thing. I'm sure that we will get to talking about a variety of approaches to treatment, but I wonder whether you would like to start us off with just stories of a couple of people you've worked with who absolutely had a good outcome. Sure, and this is a this is a person uh, who I saw a long, long time ago, and actually, I've described uh, this vignette, this this episode in. Uh, in my first book, In the Heart of Addiction, and I've referred to it in, in uh, some of my papers because it's such a clear example. I was seeing a man who uh, had uh, alcoholism. That was his particular addiction. And at the time of this vignette, he had been abstinent from drinking for about six months, and, and he had been trying to be abstinent. So he was doing okay. But one day he came into my office and he said, well, Doc, I blew it. I drank yesterday. So I asked him what happened, and he told me this story. He said he had gone downtown in the city with his wife, and uh, he dropped her off to do what she was going to do, and then he parked the car and he went off to do what he was going to do, and they agreed to meet at a certain street corner later in the afternoon. Well, when that time came, he showed up, but she didn't. And he waited and waited and waited and waited, and she still didn't show up. Now, uh, this was in the days before cell phones, so he couldn't just give her a call. Um, and he wasn't worried about her because she was the sort of person who was often late. But his problem was that he didn't know what he could do. He couldn't just go sit in the car because he parked the car after he dropped her off. She didn't know where the car was. So he was, he was stuck there. And he said it was at that point that he spotted a bar across the, the street and, and across the road and down the street. And he said he went in and he got a drink. And that was the story. So I said to him, <clears throat> let me ask you a question. <clears throat> did it help? And he said, yes. I said, when did you start to feel better? Because you were feeling pretty upset. When did you start to feel better? And he said, he started to say, I, saw, I, I, I felt better when I started to drink. But then he caught himself. And he said, actually, I started to feel better when I ordered the drink. And I said, huh. And then he thought some more. And he said, actually, I started to feel better when I walked in the bar. 
And I said, huh? And then he thought some more, and he said, okay, you want to know when I really first started to feel better? It was when I was standing on the corner, and I decided to go get a drink. Well, this is just a, a single vignette, but I've heard this from so many people in my career that I, I realized that he was telling me something very important, that his feeling better had nothing to do with having alcohol in his bloodstream. It didn't even have anything to do with being in the bar. It had to do with making the decision. So I became interested in that, and I wondered with him, why did he feel better? I mean, of course, he anticipated he would have a drink, but he didn't have it. So what was it that made him feel better? And what we found out was that he actually had solved his problem by deciding to have a drink. And the reason he had solved it is because what his problem was was that he was helpless. He was stuck there. He was trapped. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't leave. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't contact her. And for this particular man, who and people are all different, but for this particular man, having to wait for someone in that kind of situation was overwhelming. He had to do something. And the something he did was to go get a drink. And when he decided to do something, he was no longer helpless. And he wasn't. He knew he could and would solve this problem. He would go and do something. Now he wasn't helpless anymore. So the first part of what uh, uh, later became my, my theory of addiction, the first part of it was addiction has a purpose emotionally, and the purpose is to undo or reverse overwhelming helplessness. And his was, this was a good example of that. And what I found is that everybody, no matter what the addiction, has a key moment when they decide to do it, and that is the most important part of the addiction, not the addictive act itself and not certainly the destruction that comes afterwards, but the moment when people think of it or they decide. Because at that moment, something has happened emotionally which led them to feel overwhelmingly helpless. So that was the first part. Is it this, almost always helplessness? Well, it's helplessness, but don't forget, helplessness covers a very, very wide area. Because this man was helpless about feeling stuck in a house uh, uh, to begin with, his uh, his backstory and why he was so overwhelmed was that when he was a little boy, he his parents both worked, and he had no siblings, but he was a latchkey child. He was a, one of these little kids who was uh, had a key that was left by the side of the door, and when he would come home from uh, school at a very early age, he would take a key and let himself into the house, and he was in this big empty house waiting for his parents, and they often, he often had to wait a long time. So it wasn't so much that that in itself is, uh, would be a problem for everybody, but it mm -hmm. was for him, because, of course, there's more to the story. And so of being course. left alone waiting for somebody became intolerable for him. And when it was repeated in adult life, it was overwhelming. But for somebody else, the helplessness would be very, very different. And in, in my books, I describe many, many cases, each of whom is different. So for another, and I'll give you another example in a, in a minute, but what makes people feel overwhelmingly helpless is individual. And that's why, you know, when you, do, when you treat somebody, you have to make the treatment individualized. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all treatment for addiction because the reasons that people need to do some activity to reverse their helplessness are all different. But let me go on for a second. I'll give you another example in a second. The, 
the second thing with this, just to return to the man on the street corner, so we knew, in a sense, the function or the purpose of his addiction. But then I said to him, well, look, you've been trying hard to stay sober, and you've been doing a, a good job of it. Six months, you haven't had a drink. So let me ask you a question. At that key moment, when you decided to go get a drink, did you have some inner conflict? Did you go back and forth? Did you say, well, I feel like having a drink, but no, I, I really, I'm trying not to, oh, but I feel like having a drink. I said, what was that like for you? And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, and I don't know if I can say this on the radio, so I'm going to modify it slightly. But he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I said, damn it, I'm going to have a drink. Except he didn't use the word damn. Right. Got that. <laughs> so that was very important to me because what was he saying damn it about? Why? What was he so angry about? He was really angry. In fact, he was so angry, basically, that he was willing to look past his six months of sobriety and look past all the reasons why it would be a bad idea for him to drink. Nothing mattered at that moment. Damn it, he was going to do it. So this was a kind of rage, and I, I, I wanted to understand it. And, of course, he wanted to understand it, too. So the next question we had to think about was, what was he so mad about? And that one was easier to figure out because we knew what he was feeling. He was feeling trapped. It's like being in a cave, you know, and you can't get out. And when people are feeling overwhelmingly trapped, rage is actually a normal reaction. If you were caught in a cave, and now you're, the rocks are piled down between you and the entrance, and you're in the dark, you're going to start screaming and shouting and pounding on the rocks. You might even break your wrist trying to get out, pounding on those rocks. That's normal. That's a normal rage reaction. In fact, if you didn't have that, if instead you sat down in the dark and just said, okay, I'm going to die, that would not be normal wouldn't even be adaptive. So when people get feel utterly trapped and overwhelmed that way, rage is, you might say, appropriate. But the question is, uh, uh, well, let me, I'm skimming ahead. So it was his rage that drove him past every reasonable consideration to get a drink. So that was the second part of my theory. If helplessness, overwhelming helplessness, not just ordinary helplessness, by the way, I mean, everyone puts up with helplessness, you know, including people with alcoholism and other addictions, they put up with helplessness all the time. But it has to be the particular kind of helplessness that is overwhelming. And that's what I say is you have to discover for each person. But we now knew two parts. He, he was overwhelmed. He needed to reverse his helplessness. And it was his rage at helplessness that drove his behavior. And it turns out we know something in psychology about rage of this sort. It has certain characteristics. Forget addiction for the moment. That kind of rage is always overwhelming. It overwhelms the other abilities of a person to think and to judge, uh, and it can take over your reasoning power. And that's true when people have that kind of rage uh, in any circumstance. For example, in road rage, you know, you have somebody who gets infuriated, somebody cuts him off in traffic, and he takes out a wrench, and he pounds on the other guy's car. Later, he regrets it. You know, he feels terrible. He's embarrassed. But at that moment, nothing else matters. Well, it's that kind of rage at, uh, at helplessness that uh, I believe is, gives to addiction its addictive properties. It's why addiction looks the way it does. It's why it feels as though it's, it's unreasonable. 
why don't you think about, you know, why don't you think that, is, that alcohol is going to hurt you? Well, at that moment, it didn't matter. So that gives the, that I think explains why addiction looks the way it does. It also, by the way, helps to explain uh, the effect of addiction on the people around you because since it is driven by this rage reaction, really, at the key moment, um, it, it enrages people around them. You know, they say, that's just what they say. They say, why would you do something so stupid? Or why don't you care about how many people you're hurting? Or why don't you care that you're hurting yourself? Well, those things don't matter at that moment. Okay. I so can see second. how that would apply overwhelming, an overwhelming sense of helplessness or an, or an overwhelming amount of rage could right. be relieved by having a drink or two. Not by Does having the, the drink. Same not by having the drink, but having by deciding. Deci- making the decision. <laughs> Got it, deciding. Right. Does the same thing apply with other addictions? If it's gambling or if somebody's a sex addict, is that also about helplessness and rage? It is. And, and part of the reason we know that is because people switch addictions all the time. And, uh, you know, it's not as though you are, if you have, uh, let's say, alcoholism, you're never going to take a completely different kind of drug or you're never going to have a problem with eating or you're never going to have a problem with gambling. Forty percent of compulsive gamblers have alcoholism, for example. I mean, there's an enormous overlap among all addictive behaviors, and uh, that's because they all serve the same function and people switch from one to the other. And again, the behavior is, is different. But that really is not the point. I mean, it, there may be a reason why one behavior over another, and I'll talk about that a little later if you'd like. But yes. Um, and so let me, I'll just say, and the last part of the theory, which I'll say quickly, actually helps, I think, to explain that. Because okay. left, there was one more question for this man on the street corner. The last question was, okay, we knew why he drank, we knew what drove him to drink, but why drink? Why not do something else? And... The answer to that, I think, <clears throat> to get to the answer, you have to go back to the beginning. I said he was helpless, but he wasn't really helpless because he could have left. He only stayed because he didn't think it was right to leave. He could have abandoned his wife. He knew where the car was. He could have gotten in the car and driven home. He didn't do it because he didn't want to abandon his wife. But my point is, if he had done that, and I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, But let's say he did. Well, then I don't think he would have had a drink. The point is that when people do feel this way, when they feel overwhelmed and they they must do something, uh, if the thing that they do is a direct action, like leaving, you don't need an addiction because you took care of the problem. So addictions are always what we call in psychology displacements or substitutions. Whenever somebody is in that state and they do some other thing, they are, it's another compulsive activity. They, they feel compelled to do something, like drink or eat. That's a substitute or a displacement from doing the direct action. And when people do that, we say they have an addiction because what they're doing is compulsively driven to do some activity, which we call the addiction, and then we name the addiction according to what they do. So if, if this, this man was an alcoholic because when he felt this way, his displacement was drinking. But if the next day, in the same situation, he had felt an overwhelming urge to solve this problem by gambling, we'd give him a new diagnosis. We'd say, now you're a compulsive gambler. And if on the third day 
uh, or the following week, under the same circumstance, he felt a compulsive urge to eat, we'd say you have an eating disorder. Okay, I think I've got your main point here, and that's certainly different from the way most people understand addictions. We're going to take a short break now, and I will be back talking with Dr. Lance Dotis in a couple of minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively, In a private, confidential setting, we help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and today I'm talking with a psychiatrist, Dr. Lance Dotis, who has written, among other things, a book called Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook for ending any addiction. Dr. Dotis was the director of substance abuse treatment at Harvard's McLean Hospital, the Alcoholism Treatment Unit at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, and the Boston Center for Problem Gambling. And he is a distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. So we're learning from a real expert today. Dr. Dotis, would you like to 
give us another example of um, the way that you think that you've learned to understand addictions. Sure. Um, there was a, a woman who I was seeing whose uh, particular addiction involved taking the um, drug Percodan, uh, which is a, a, a relatively mild narcotic. Anyway, um, so at the time of this uh, uh, vignette, she, was, she was, had been in, in therapy. I was meeting with her regularly. And she was a woman who was quite meek, and she had an overbearing husband um, who she put up with quite a lot. And at the time of this story, um, she uh, was at home and in the middle of the day, and she said, she told me about this, she said her husband called from work and said, I want you to prepare dinner for guests. I'm having business guests over to the house and you know, prepare a, uh, a fancy dinner and uh, I'm going to bring them home and, and uh, you know, get ready. And in her usual way, she said, yes, dear, and hung up the phone, and she hated these dinners. Um, she also had other things in her life that she would like to do. So she said, yes, dear, but she immediately walked over to the medicine cabinet and opened it up and took out her vial of Percodans, and she took a couple. So... Um, Later, uh, he came home, and she was in the process of making dinner, but he could tell that she was uh, high on the Percodan, and they had a huge fight. Um, and uh, we talked about all that and what happened. And um, sometime later, she told me that the identical thing occurred. Again, he called up in the middle of the day, make dinner, the same thing. And when she told me the story, she said, Now, I know what I should have done. I should have told him to make his own damn dinner. I, I had learned enough by now, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So again, she said, yes, dear. And again, she walked to the medicine cabinet, and she started to take out the pills. And as you can see, the, the pattern of this is just like in the man on the street corner. She felt overwhelmed, and her particular helplessness was, uh, had to do with her need to be meek. She was a very timid person, and she was often feeling bullied, and she often you know, got herself into situations in which she was bullied. So that was her helplessness. And as she said to me, of course, what she should have done, a direct action, would have been to tell him to make his own damn dinner. But she couldn't quite do that yet. So she went over to the medicine cabinet and she opened it. But then she stopped. And this is when she said to me, okay, you know what? I didn't, I didn't take the pills. And I said, uh, how come? What happened? She said, I found another way. I said, what'd you do? She said, well, I thought about it, and I couldn't call him back and say, make your own damn dinner, but what I did think of was, I'll order in Chinese food. And the key is that at the moment she thought of ordering Chinese food, her addictive urge vanished. Still there? Wow. Yeah. It was, I mean, it didn't vanish forever, but it vanished at that moment. And since we had been talking, we both knew why. It was exactly what I had described before. She now found another solution. It was also a displacement, you might say. She, she, didn't, she didn't, wasn't direct with her husband. But she found another way to not be helpless. And it wasn't perfect, but it was better than taking pills for her. And once she found a different displacement, she didn't need the pills anymore. So 
that was another good example, I think, of how this works in people. Um, That's so, fascinating that ordering Chinese food could be an alternative to taking a mild narcotic. That's right. I like because that. Remember, it has nothing to do with the actual action of the drug. I mean, because it could have been that she, instead of taking a mild narcotic, that she was a compulsive gambler. She wasn't, but it could have been. In which case, right. she would be, you know, getting online and making placing a bet offshore or something like that. So it's not the drug. It's not the activity. It's the release from helplessness. Now, why people choose one activity over another is, again, that's a separate topic, but, but they all work this way. Okay. Well, let's move on and talk about treatment. Sure. I'll let you start where you want. Talk about what kinds of treatment other people often attempt or how you think treatment should be handled. Well, in our country, um, we don't really do things uh, uh, very well. And we know that because the treatment success rate for addiction is very poor. Um, so there are several ways that we could approach it. Um, the first way, of course, is that since addiction is, is neither more nor less than a compulsive behavior, like other compulsions, except this one, is, these are more dangerous, but they're the, basically the same, um, we can treat them the way I've treated these two people and others, in a, by talking to them in psychotherapy. Uh, people with addictions are just as smart as anybody else, and they're just as emotionally capable as anybody else, so they can think about their problems and work it out. And, for example, <coughs> um, the woman in the, with the Chinese food, it turned out that her meekness had a long history in her life, and it, it, in the end it was associated with her relationship with her mother, and she had always felt overwhelmed and that she had to be meek, and her mother wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow her really to be more um, uh, to be more assertive. And over time, she worked that out. She began to become more assertive in lots of ways. In fact, she was better in other ways than with her husband for a long time. But gradually, she worked it out. And then she didn't need the addiction because she could do even better than the Chinese food. She eventually could tell her husband, as it turned out, to make his own damn dinner. Um, and the man on the street corner, you know, as we worked out what made him feel overwhelmed, uh, he was less bothered by circumstances like that when they came up in his life. They weren't all echoes of the past for him. And when they were, he understood them. He had some perspective on them. He didn't need his, his drinking, and he eventually stopped. So psychotherapy, if it's done right, this is not, I'm not talking about something that is, doesn't pay attention to the addiction. I'm talking about a psychotherapy that does pay a lot of attention to it in the way that I'm describing uh, can be very effective. But it's not for everybody because not everyone is particularly insightful and not everyone is, um, you know, uh, oriented that way. Uh, so there are other ways of, of doing things. There's um, what's called harm reduction programs. And these are designed not so much to understand the addiction, but to help people to work out ways, practical ways, to not necessarily to stop their behavior if they can't, but to reduce the harm from them, to decrease them, to change the way they do them. There are a number of programs that work that way. One of them is called Life Ring. One of them is called the HAMS Network, H-A-M-S. Um, uh, and uh, uh, there are others. But the most common treatment that people, families tell their family members to do and professionals say is they send them to 12-step programs, the anonymous programs like AA or Gamblers Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous and so forth. 
And my last book, The Sober Truth, what we did was we looked at studies that all tried to evaluate the, the success rate for AA. And there have been dozens of these. And we looked at them all. We looked at them up to the time of publication of the book, which was uh, uh, last year, 2014. We looked at 40 years of studies. And it turns out that the success rate for AA is between 5 and 8%, which practically nobody seems to know. Everyone thinks, you know, well, AA is the right treatment for everybody, and maybe it doesn't work for everyone, but heck, it's, everyone should go. And that turns out, statistically, that's, that's wrong. That's a very surprising statistic. I think people, most people would not expect that. Well, that's right. They don't expect it. And, and it, it isn't that AA shouldn't exist. It's good that it exists for that 5 to 8%. But the problem is that people think that it's the right treatment, and when people don't do well in it, which is the great majority, they're not told, okay, this is not the treatment for you, which, after all, is what every professional would say you know, try something else, or if you're on a medicine, try a different medicine, or if you're a surgeon, you say, this is not the right operation for you, go see this other fellow. AA doesn't say that. They say, do it more. Come back, go to more meetings, get more involved, do 90 meetings in 90 days. And although some people are helped, there are an enormous number of people who have lost years and even decades of their lives going back and back to AA, still drinking, not getting anything out of it, because they're told, this is what you should do. Just try harder. Work the program. Recently, a fellow wrote a book called It Works, uh, The Program Works If You Work It, which is a, an AA slogan. Actually, that's, that's not true. It's a very dangerous thing to say because what that says is, if you're in the 90% of people who can't benefit, it's your fault. You're not working it. And that's a terrible thing to do to people. So 12-step programs should be prescribed, really. They should be limited, just like you prescribe anything else. You should try them if you want to. But believe me, not trying them is also a good idea because they work for so few. But if you want to, try them. But the key is, if you're not being helped, if you don't find any benefit, get out because it's not going to get better over time. And that's what we discovered from all the statistics. And the other thing is, Almost all, not all, but almost all of the rehabs, the rehabilitation programs in our country are 12-step based. All the famous ones are Hazelden, Betty Ford, Sierra Tucson. Uh, they're all 12-step programs, and they charge a fortune. They charge from 30000 to $90,000 a month, and the insurance wow. doesn't cover it. Yeah, the insurance doesn't cover it. So the question is, is it worth that? And people spend, really, they, it's another tragedy. People, to help their loved ones, they, they give, they spend their life savings on these programs. And they do not work any better than AA works because they're 12-step programs. And if you try to look up their statistics, even though every single one of them, if you look up their websites, every single one of them say that they have fabulous success, none of them have any numbers to back it up. And the, the only, they just don't study it. Uh, we talked to uh, the fellow who was the research director for Betty Ford, and he said they had not even studied their outcome for the past decade. Um, the one study that came out of one of them, which was Hazelden, showed that their success rate declined 
starting from day one, when people leave the hospital, steadily until at the end of the year, most people were drinking. And uh, they, uh, when, when, uh, they published a version of that on their website, actually. And I called them up and I said, look, I found the study, the actual academic paper that was your, your, they had a graph that your graph is based on. I said, you know, this is quite inaccurate. And they took it off their website. So the reason that people, and this we talk in the sober truth, we go into this in some detail, but the reason that some people say that AA has a higher success rate is that the studies often claim that that's true, but the studies are deeply flawed, and the biggest flaw is they ignore the data that doesn't fit their conclusion. That's a big no-no in science. Yeah, that is. What they do is, in all of these studies, the majority of people drop out. And the authors themselves acknowledge that we know that the people who we're following who drop out are the ones who are doing the worst. Everyone doing well stays in the study. You know, they answer the questionnaires, they take telephone calls, you know, they tell us that they're doing well. But once we can't reach them and they've dropped out, we know that the likelihood is that they're not doing well. But all those people who are not doing well are left out of the study as if they never existed. So what happens is over time, and one of the worst examples of this, was, which is one of the most famous papers, studied people for 15 years. And at the end of 15 years, they said, wow, we have a great success rate. What they didn't mention was that 83% of their population had disappeared. So they were judging from the people who were left. And it's, it would be just like giving you know, uh, penicillin to people with pneumonia and saying, you know, we'll follow you 10 years later to see how many of you survive. Well, not all pneumonias are treatable by penicillin, only some. So at the end of 10 years, you're going to be left with only the people who had the kind of pneumonia that you could treat with penicillin. And you're going to say, it's a great drug. Everyone should take it. Meanwhile, everyone else is dead. So... That's the major flaw. There are other major flaws with these studies. But once you figure in all the flaws, um, it turns out that you end up with the statistic that I, that I gave. And by the way, even AA itself uh, says that 75% of their people drop out by year one. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a terrible thing that everybody thinks that it's the best treatment or the only treatment um, because it hurts so many people. They end up thinking that they are to blame when they don't do well, and they stay in it. That does sound really unfortunate. Um, and it is surprising to me because I have known people who were the ones for whom AA worked, and so they say wonderful things about it. Well, that's, that's right, and we all know those people, and they're not lying. Right. But there are, there are 40 million, 30 or 40 million alcoholics in the country, and and. If they all go to AA, they don't. But if they did, and it has a 5 or an 8% success rate, you would find there are a couple of million people, that means, who have found success in AA. And we hear about them. And that's a right. lot of people. But percentage-wise, right. it's very small. And um, the other thing that creates what is known in science as a sampling bias is we always hear from the successful people. We don't hear from the unsuccessful people. If you go to the recovery section of a bookstore, you will see books, How AA Saved My Life. You know, and again, they're not lying. 
But there are no books saying how AA ruined my life. Those people don't write books. So we have a sampling bias. We hear from the people who do well, and we don't from the people who, who don't. And that's, by the way, starting to change. There have been a number of books lately starting to reveal the truth about AA. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying these are bad people. I'm just saying that what's bad about them is that they don't help people to get out. They don't act like professionals. They don't decide who should be in, and they don't help people to get out when it's not helping them. And, of course, they're not professionals. Okay. But we, we treat them as though they are. We give them the respect uh, that they don't really deserve as a group. Well, you've certainly made an important point here, and I hope that this will be really helpful to some of the folks in our audience. We're going to take another break, and I'll be back in a couple of minutes. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and today I'm talking with psychiatrist Lance Dodis, who has written, among other books, Breaking Addiction, a seven-step handbook for ending, ending any addiction. 
Now, Dr. Dotis, you've uh, successfully helped a lot of people to master their addictions and a variety of kinds of addictions. What do you have to say about the notion that an addiction is a brain disease? Well, that's, uh, I'm afraid, another misconception that is very, very widespread. And it's widespread for a reason, because the National Institute on Drug uh, uh, Abuse, and NIDA for short, NIDA, uh, has advertised this for years now, for 10 or 15 years. They said that they had discovered uh, the nature of addiction as a, uh, a problem in the brain. And let me explain what they did, and then I'll explain why it's not right. What they did was they studied rats, and they addicted these rats to heroin. They were physically addicted to heroin. And um, what would happen is there were cues in the environment, uh, some like a, a sound or a color, or something that w- they associated with the heroin. And when they had trained the rats, then they could just expose them to the cue, and the rats would run around seeking heroin. This may sound familiar if you remember the story of Pavlov and his dogs. Um, a uh, hundred years ago, Pavlov trained dogs to, to he, by ringing a bell every time he fed them food, and then he discovered if he just rang the bell, the dogs would salivate, um, and he had created what uh, he called a conditioned reflex. So this part of what the NIDA scientists did was not new. But the new part, after they had created this conditioned reflex in the rats, was they looked at the rats' brains, which Pavlov wasn't able to do, and they discovered that uh, the reason that these uh, being exposed to a cue in the environment caused them to run around was that their brains reacted to the cue by releasing the uh, chemical dopamine, which is a, a neurotransmitter. And the way uh, the reward pathway works in rats and humans is that when dopamine is released into the pathway, you have the kind of result that you saw in the rats. It gets people excited and reward-seeking. It creates what they call seeking behavior. So that's what, that's what, it's also sometimes called the pleasure pathway, by the way, because the dopamine is a pleasurable feeling. So, so they discovered that, and they said, and they discovered one more thing, that the brains of these rats were now hypersensitive. They were oversensitive to the cues. So what would happen is that, unlike another rat, um, when they saw a cue, they would, they would have an extra response, extra, res- extra secretion of dopamine, and they said, aha, we've discovered the nature of addiction. If you take a lot of a drug like heroin, then you will have a change in your brain, and you will be excited whenever you see a cue, and then, like the rats, you'll run around looking for the drug. Now, I realize it sounds stupid because it is stupid, but the reason that they concluded this was they said, look, humans and rats are the same. They have the same reward pathway, the same dopamine mechanism. What they forgot was that exactly what makes us different from rats is that we have a large new brain that sits on top of the old brain. We have a huge cerebral hemispheres uh, which make us different from rats. If we didn't have them, we would be rats, and we would run around just like the rats. But we have a mind. We have psychology, which the rats don't have. There's much more to us. Otherwise, we'd be stimulus response creatures just like the rats. And the NIDA researchers never 
researched any psychology. They didn't even read about it. We know that because they never they didn't reference it. They just figured people are like rats. Well, it turns out that if you look at human addiction, humans are almost exactly the opposite from rats. If you think of these uh, people who I was just describing, when they felt the urge to uh, do their behavior, they didn't run around and get excited. They didn't get excited at all. In fact, they got calm. They said, oh, okay, now I'm going to do it. Uh, where I used, I used to live in Boston, and uh, all the compulsive gamblers I treated used to go down to um, the casinos, which are in Connecticut. And they would be quite calm driving down there. The key moment for them was deciding to go to the casino, but they would spend, it takes an hour and a half to get to the casino, and they were perfectly happy. They weren't running around, and there was certainly no dopamine going through their brain exciting them. People don't work that way. It's not the same. Um, the same is true for people who, who decide to go get a drink and they drive to the bar. Um, we don't respond to, to visual cues like the rats. We respond to psychological cues, you might say. We respond to things that are important to us emotionally. And when we respond, it's, it works the way I described. It has nothing to do with, uh, uh, with dopamine. But we have even stronger evidence so that this is not true. Because if it were true, well then, if you took a group of people, you addicted them to heroin, they would be permanent addicts, just like the rats. But we know that's not true. Forty years ago, there was a famous experiment done looking at... Vietnam War veterans. There were a lot of veterans who had used heroin in high doses in Vietnam. And that heroin was actually more pure than the heroin on the streets of the United States. And this particular researcher, a woman named Robbins from uh, Washington University in St. Louis, um, followed them up six months after they came home. And what she discovered was that 90% of them never used heroin again. So this is exactly the opposite of what should have happened according to the brain disease theory. Their brains wow. should have been diseased. But it's not only that. What about all the people who stopped smoking in the 1980s when the Surgeon General said it's going to kill you? They all had a physical addiction too, to nicotine. But they stopped because they didn't want to die. They didn't all stop. But how could they do that? They're supposed to have a physical diseased brain. Well, they don't. What about people who are given uh, high doses of narcotics in the hospital for, for pain, cancer patients and, and others? Well, when they're released in the hospital, they don't go out looking for their local pusher. You know, again, some people have trouble getting off it, but 98% of them don't. They should have a changed brain. So we know that the chronic brain disease theory is simply wrong. So you may say, why does everybody keep talking about it? The reason they keep talking about it is because they repeat each other. The only people who actually did this research are at NIDA, and maybe one or two other places. But everyone else believes them. No one has ever taken the trouble to see whether you could produce addiction in a human by experiment by changing their brain. In fact, we know that experiment occurred naturally, you might say, in Vietnam and in, in cigarette smoking and everywhere else. It just ain't so. But everyone believes it, so it's important to not believe it. Um, there's a woman named Nora Volkow, who's the head of the NIDA research, and there was a famous article that appeared in the New York Times magazine a few years ago describing her as a general in the drug war. Actually, she's more like a Benedict Arnold because what she's done is promulgated this false view. By the way, it has no usefulness either. 
if it were true, then there would be, it would be hopeless to treat addiction because you'd have a drain disease and no one would ever be able to stop. So um, it's, it's, and there is no treatment that comes from it. So it's important for people to know that because we don't want to distract them from getting real help for what the real, real issues are. I see your point. <laughs> are there any other common misconceptions about the nature of addiction or what's effective for helping people break their addictions that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, well, I think one of the things, uh, let me, since this is a, a, a program about families, let me just say something about uh, uh, kids. Um, it's a big issue for parents when their kids start to do things excessively as teenagers, whether it's uh, drinking or taking drugs or even, you know, Internet uh, porn sites or, or other things. There are all sorts of things that kids do that drive their parents crazy. And often it's the parents, one of the worries is, does my child have an addiction? Is my child, let's say, an alcoholic? Or is my child a compulsive gambler? Because there's a huge amount of gambling in young people now, huge. It's in every school. Um, so uh, what's important to know is that if you look forward from kids who, let's say, are drinking heavily, if you look forward, it turns out that relatively few of them become alcoholics. The confusing part is if you look backwards from people who are alcoholics when they're 30, almost all of them started when they were teenagers. So the, 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 the take-home message is don't assume that it's an addiction, but pay attention to it. And the way to pay attention to it is to find out, is to have either talk to your child or have a, an evaluation and the question you want to ask is not how much do you drink, because that's not the point. The question is, why do you drink? And kids drink because they're being, they're, it's an expression of their autonomy growing up. I'm going to do what, you know, I'm, I'm going to rebel. It's, a, it's an element of being a part of a new peer group. Everyone else is doing it. It's a part of being, a part of it is being ignorant, literally, because they say, well, Joe says if you take this stuff, it's, good. it's not going to hurt you. And, of course, Joe has a degree from nowhere. So there are a lot of factors that make young people do things excessively that are not addictions. And, and that's actually good news because it doesn't mean your child is doomed just because he's doing something too much uh, at a young age. Yeah, teenagers do seem to be good at getting carried <laughs> away with something that worries their parents. Yes, and a lot right. of them pull through and do fine. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if you're not sure, get an evaluation. Have, have, have your kid talk to somebody who, who knows what he's doing, somebody who's trained psychologically, and see if they can figure out what's going on about why the kid is doing it. It may turn out, you know, maybe he's just trying to impress his girlfriend, then that's not an addiction. I mean, it doesn't make the behavior safe, but it's, it's a different kind of thing. Okay, we have only a couple of minutes left. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you a question about your approach to treatment. Mm -hmm. I, I think you said you ask, why are you doing this? So suppose a woman comes in and answers that question saying, well, the reason I drink is that that makes it possible for me to be nice to my husband. Well, if she said that, then she would be like the case of the woman with the, um, with the Chinese food. I mean, then That's true. You'd, have, you'd have to say, tell me why you feel you have to be so nice to your husband. 
you know, I mean, you'd have to explore with her why she needs to be pleasing her husband and can't do it in some way other than um, whatever it is that she's doing. Uh, if, she, if she says, I drink because uh, I, it, it, it makes me so frustrated that I have to be so nice to him, that's one thing. But there's something entirely different. What, and this is another kind of non-addiction confusion. What if she's drinking because she's keeping her husband company? That happens. He drinks all, she comes in and she says, my husband really is an alcoholic and he drinks all the time. And what am I going to do? He's sitting there drinking and I can't even relate to him. So I drink. When the two of us are drinking, we can actually relate to each other. I'm drinking in order to have a relationship with him, otherwise I can't. That's, that would not, even if she's drinking too much, it's not an addiction, it's something else. Because I it's see. driven by something else. Okay, we've got about a half a minute more. What else would you like to tell the listeners before we say goodbye? Well, I would say that if you're looking for somebody to help you with this, find the best therapist you can and make sure that they are not stuck in some single idea. Again, something like AA is okay if it's okay for you. But if somebody says, you've got to go to AA and then I'll talk to you about your problems, avoid that person at all costs because that's backwards. They should be talking to you about your problems first. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Lance Sturtis. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.